So the statistics are starting to roll in on the toll that the pandemic took on us. And the majority of the news items that we've been used to hearing, of course, have been about the number of infections that happened, the number of deaths that occurred, uh, how many vaccinations are being distributed. But I do find that there's an underreported effect that's been going on along with the pandemic, and that is the mental health crisis that we're experiencing. Uh, there are several studies that are coming out from all kinds of different sources that are confirming that stress and anxiety have actually skyrocketed in the last year, in the last 12 months. I read some articles that suggested that some 80% of people reported escalating levels of stress during the pandemic, 50% of them that led them to have what they called depressive thoughts, leading to the to most shocking of all statistics, that some, some 15 to 20% of people begin to experience even suicidal thoughts. I think that's what I would call a crisis when it comes to the way we're dealing with this. <clears throat> and as if to make that more complicated, most people, while we were isolated and quarantined from each other, didn't feel like the normal places where one goes to receive relief were even available to them. We were quarantined from them. In other words, you had almost this last year what you would call a perfect storm of anxiety and worry. And honestly, when it comes to all these things, we realize that we know that something is happening. You've heard me say this before, but I, I do think that one of the best things to, to grasp when you're trying to understand yourself is simply this fact. And that is that pain is going to come out of your life somewhere. It's inevitable. It's going to make it out somehow. We use terminology like self-medication to describe the ways in which we try to numb that pain. So we've seen in the last year, alcohol abuse skyrocket. We've seen verbal abuse in the home uh, rise as well as physical abuse. Use of pornography as a self-medication has also rise, been on the rise. Now, eventually, all of this takes a grueling toll on us. Now, why am I rehearsing all this? Well, because when you add up all these stories that exist, I'm sure even in this room, and you begin to tally the toll that it takes on our lives... You would almost say, look, if there was ever a justifiable year to say that we're supposed to be worrying, it's this year. <laughs> was there ever a time where it feels like we're supposed to be worrying if there was ever a time? And yet, in the face of that, we come across a passage where Jesus lays down this remarkably simplistic command there in verse 26. Look what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There it is. <laughs> and is there a little part of you that that maybe strikes you as almost insensitive? I mean, think about this. Imagine how this feels with your spouses. Ladies, let's say that you have had, by any objective uh, uh, quantification, a seriously bad day. But you're not worried because you have your attentive and emotionally intelligent husband waiting for you at home. So you sit down with them and you carefully unpack all of the disappointments of the day He's even making eye contact with you for Pete's sakes. And all of a sudden, at the very end of it, you get through it all. And even after you've unloaded it all, you start to feel better. But you look at him straight in the face and you say, well, what do you think? At which moment he very helpfully, monumentally helpfully adds, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, thanks for that. I shouldn't feel that way. Right. Do you have friends like this who when all of a sudden you, they try to give advice, you feel like they're just being shockingly unrealistic about how complicated our problems really are. 
You know, back in the 2000s, there was a Saturday Night Live skit starring the late uh, Bob Newhart, where Newhart was playing a psychiatrist, and a person comes into the office and tells them that they're anxious and worried all the time, and worried that they're going to harm themselves if he don't get, doesn't get help. Well, Newhart looks at him and promises him, I guarantee you that I can help with your problem. And they're like, well, how? And he goes, well, it's very simple. Stop it. And they're like, yeah, but you don't understand. I've got all these feelings on the inside. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop that too. Well, you don't realize this is very complicated. I know, I know. Just stop it. And, of course, that's hilarious to us when we watch it. Apparently funnier to me than it was to you, but that's okay. Because we feel sometimes like that's how life is treating us. No one's taking this seriously. Which is funny until you feel like Jesus is doing the same thing to us. Is Jesus taking us seriously? Does my faith in Christ have any bearing on my experience of anxiety and worry? That's what Jesus is instructing us in here. And I think what we found this particular spring as we've been studying Jesus' vision of the good life, this, this, this life full of blessing and peace, is that you cannot live the good life until you're able to silence that voice in your head. There is a voice inside of my head that is telling us, especially in this last year, that the best play for us this year is fear and anxiety. And so what Jesus gives us in this passage is at least three very powerful ways in which we can address that voice in our heads and silence its effects. And it all has to do with the way we're thinking about it. So Jesus says, I want you to give, give three thoughts to things. I want you, first of all, to think financially. I want you to think faithfully. And then finally, I want you to think fatherly. So it's an impressive alliteration there, I might add. Number one. He says, I want you to learn to think financially. What do I mean by that? Well, look how Jesus reasons with us here. When he opens his command with stop being anxious, he follows in verse 25 by saying this. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Highlight that word. Again, in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you. You see him placing values on there. Jesus is saying that the reason why we are worried is because anxiety is nothing more than the discharge of someone who feels devalued, of someone who feels worthless. And so Jesus tells his followers to think of an example. And his first one he gives us is the example of birds. Who really honestly worries about the birds? And, of course, I'm sure there's some environmental lobby out there that's deeply concerned about the birds. But for the most part, the birds take care of themselves, right? I don't spend a bunch of energy thinking about the plight of the birds. But Jesus is inviting you into this moment of saying, use your imagination to plunge into God's mind about these seemingly insignificant creatures. And you know what you're going to find? He feeds them. He feeds them. And he does so without, he stresses, all of the toiling and the gathering and the purchasing and the consuming that human beings do. And yet God has his mind on them. In other words, God is sort of measuring the worth of these birds by feeding them without so much any effort on their part. That's the beauty. Then he turns from the whole conversation about birds to where he suddenly starts to talk about flowers. And it's as if he invites us in to say, man, Think about how awesome a flower is. 
When was the last time you got out in your garden and you found yourself getting lost in the intricacy and the delicate nature of a beautiful flower? When was the last time that happened? Because if you can get lost in the beauty of a flower, maybe you can think for a second about where it was that that flower got its beauty. Where did it get its look? Are you ready for this? It was from my father. My father is the one who dressed that thing the way that it looks. Hey, but you know what? That's just a flower. It's God's intention to clothe you in inexpressible beauty, just like those flowers. He is going to, quote, much more clothe you. You think that's beautiful, Jesus is saying. What do you think my father is going to do with you? You see his connection? Are you not of more value than they? That word value there is a financial word. Jesus is encouraging us to put a spiritual price tag on the things that we value around us. Put Name it. Give it a value. And then multiply that thing times a zillion, and you're going to get close to how much he values you. That's the message. There was a pastor friend of mine who tells a story about being in a big hurry in New York City and climbing into a taxi cab which itself is an extraordinary act of bravery. I don't know if you've ever been through New York in a taxi cab, but it's a harrowing experience. These guys weave in and out of traffic like there's no tomorrow. But on this occasion, the, uh, the worst happened. The taxi driver took a sharp turn and slammed right into the back of another taxi that was right in front of them, right? Denting up both, both of their bumpers. Well, the very first thought the pastor thought was, oh, great, Well, I'm definitely going to be late now. I'm going to be here all day long. But instead, the cabbie, of course, made a rude gesture at the taxi in front of him and then turned and drove off. And the pastor was frozen because he was like, in any other circumstance, the drivers would have to get out of the car. They would have to exchange insurance information. They got to call the police. It would have been a whole thing, right? But instead, the cabbie just drives off. Why? And what he said was, he said, because a New York City cabbie does not place the same value on a car accident that you and I do. You want to know why? Because he's got much higher priorities. So Jesus is saying, I want you to become like a New York City cabbie. Because that taxi driver values his next fare over everything else. So suddenly it put this little accident into context, didn't it? He could look at it and say, this is just a bump, a blip on the screen. He doesn't worry. Why? Because his value is elsewhere. Look, our anxiety and our worry is so deeply connected to the assessment of the value that I put on the object that I'm worried about. And so Jesus becomes, I think, this brilliant counselor because he wants you to assess the value of your life over and against the things that you have overvalued. Do you see the the conversation? In other words, Jesus doesn't come along to us and come up to our face and shame us about the things that we're worried over. He doesn't do that. Instead, he argues at what is propelling your worry underneath. And what he's saying is, you have overvalued. You, you, You have overpriced your next big business deal. That's why you're worried over it. You you have overvalued and overpriced that friendship of yours that you can't stop thinking about. You have have placed too much value on this economic forecast that you heard from someone who honestly doesn't know. 
You've overvalued your marriage. You've overvalued your children. You've overvalued your career. Where is it? Jesus is inviting us into this to consider birds and consider flowers, consider everything that you've overvalued. Not so that you can diminish those things, but rather so that you can emphasize your worth relative to those things. That is genius. (laughs) Jesus is telling us, look, I want you to think about the beauty that's in store for you when my Father clothes you. Brilliant counseling on Jesus' part. So here's the question. When your thoughts turn to God, do you sense his value of you? Is that anywhere on the the emotional or mental sort of a screen of the things you think about when your thoughts turn to God? Because if it's not, it's less than the vision Jesus is giving us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only that, it'll make us crippled with worry. So that's thinking financially. Secondly, though, we need to think faithfully, Jesus says. To think faithfully. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the end of verse 30. Jesus says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I've said this before, and I'll say it many more times to come. Uh, I can tell you that there was no other topic in my years of working with college students that was more misunderstood about the Christian life than the topic of faith. What is faith? What is, it, what is its general nature? And in my experience, most people, when you ask them about faith, that you find out that their definition is that faith is really this positive mental state that is marked by the absence of doubt. In other words, you know that you're being faithful when you don't allow any thought of doubt ever to enter your mind. And honestly, you could honestly be excused of, of thinking this way because it's exactly the way in which our culture looks at the topic of believing. You know, we're coming up on the College World Series here, and I have no idea who's going to win. We're going to root for the rebels as much as we are obliged to do uh, by living in Oxford. But what's interesting is I can tell you almost certainly that there's going to be a team that goes through this and is not supposed to get as far as they will. And they're going to win a big game that nobody expects them to win. And there's going to be a news reporter that's going to walk up to that, one of those players and he's going to stick a microphone in his face and be like, wow, what an amazing victory. How did you do it? And that player is going to say something along the lines of this. He's going to say, well, you know, from the very beginning, we never stopped believing that we could do it. In other words, what brought about the good results in their life was this sort of action, this faith, this, this, this positive energy inside that refused to enter, entertain any thought that they might fail. And therefore, we got what we got. I want to submit to you, that's a very crippling way of thinking about faith and believing. And it's actually not the Bible's view of believing either. Because I've always wished that the commentator would go into the losing side's locker room, you know what I'm saying, and ask him the same question. And look at him and be like, man, coach, that was tough. What happened out there today? And I want so bad for that coach to look up and say, well, you know, we're not exactly sure what happened yet. We believed more than anything else in the world that we were going to win. So we're going into the locker room here, and we're going to spend a few hours figuring out exactly who it was who didn't believe enough. Who was it that was doubting that we would win? Because clearly it's their fault. (laughs) Who was the weakest link in the room? Now, that's a silly question, right? But it's actually not so silly when you realize what happens when the stakes are much higher. Remember years ago, probably about 10 years ago, I read a news feature uh, featuring a couple in Des Moines, Iowa, who were using um, IVF techniques to get pregnant, only to find 
that they had seven healthy embryos that had uh, implanted themselves in the mother's womb. Well, the doctors began to beg them that they would, should abort at least half of those particular embryos so that they could give the other babies even a chance at survival. But the parents refused. And the reason why, and I found the quote, was this. They said, we believe that God creates life and we don't have the right to abort any of them. And the result of it was all seven babies were born and survived and were healthy on the other side. Famously known as the McCoy septuplets. Amazing story of faith, right? But what was interesting was is the new show I was watching contrasted that couple with another couple in a nearby state who had an almost exactly similar story but with disastrous results. The wife, too, had gone under IVF uh, uh, treatments and had found three healthy embryos, which the doctors also diagnosed and encouraged her to abort at least two. But she refused on the exact same moral grounds that the McCoy uh, septuplets had. And the result is that all three babies were born severely disfigured and with problems that they would have for the rest of their particular life. And the interviewer recorded the lady saying something that I thought was so powerfully disturbing. She said, why did God do this? I had faith. I believed just like they did. Why did God give me this life and not that life? What's her problem? The problem is a misunderstanding of faith. Faith is not something that wells up inside of you and somehow magically leverages God to give you the life that you want. That's not the biblical view of faith. Rather, faith is a mechanism inside every human being that looks outside of itself for meaning in life. In other words, faith is so much more about its object rather than about its substance. The quality of your faith is not measured by some arbitrary standard of positive feelings in you. No, faith is about what you are directed at. And so I'll say it again. I'm getting to where I'm saying this a lot these days. You are equipped as a human being with a motivational center that the Bible calls the heart. And that's the center of your thinking and of your feeling and of your choices. And it is the nature of that heart to lock onto things to find real life, fulfilled life, satisfied life. But since this entrance of sin into the world... Our hearts have this inclination to lock onto anything as long as it's not God. That's what our hearts are in sin. The Bible refers to those things when our hearts lock onto them as idols. Number one sin in the Bible, idolatry. And Jesus comes along to us in the Sermon on the Mount and he goes, Look, here's my problem with your idols. They're so small. They are way too small to fill up what you need inside your soul. This is what he means when he says, oh, you of little faith. He's not talking about the quantity of their faith. He's saying, look, the reason why you're so worried about your life is because you've directed your faith at something that's too small to fill up your heart. It's a little thing that you've placed your heart's confidence in. If your faith, though, was directed at me, I'm the only thing that is large enough to occupy your life and in so doing to squeeze out the things that I would worry about. It's the only path. Look, when God is the thing that you trust in the most, Jesus is saying you become invulnerable. Nothing can touch you. 
And it'll make you go back and rewrite your personal history. When I was in college, I, I, I dated a person and loved her more than I loved God. And the result of that love was that I destroyed that love. Now, mind you, I liked God a lot. But I rested my motivational center on her. So when that relationship crumbled, I wasn't just disappointed, I was devastated. It's perfectly okay to be sad, but Jesus is trying to keep us from falling apart. He's saying, oh, you're a little faith. You haven't found something big enough to rest your faith in, but I can. I am. Jesus wants us to think financially, he wants us to think faithfully, and then finally, unsurprisingly, he wants us to think fatherly. Did you notice that throughout these verses, twice Jesus refers to God as our heavenly Father? And we're used to seeing God referred to that way all the time. But I mentioned a couple weeks ago, and I want to build on it this morning, that that was not at all a common way for a Jewish person to refer to God. It was actually quite blasphemous in those days to refer to him in such familiar terms. But over and over again in this sermon, Jesus keeps trying to encourage his followers to, to make a mental association between good human fathers and their heavenly father. That's the miracle. I only read half of it a couple weeks ago, but I'm gonna, I've got a little more time to read the whole of it this morning. The late J.I. Packer puts this famous quote in front of us that I think we'll read for ages to come. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook of life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to being merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Man, that's a searching quote. But look, make the connection with our worry in this particular context. Because Jesus is assuming that one of the best ways to remedy your worry is to begin to think of him as being a good daddy. But so often we spend our time struggling with any view of God other than that one, do we not? There's always this transfer between looking at God as if he is a good father and looking at him as if he is a mean master. We don't look to him as if we are his child. We look to him as if we are his slave. I've talked about this before. You know, if you'd have gone into any ancient Near Eastern Roman household in Jesus' day, it would have been hard simply by appearances to know who were the children of the master of the house and who were the slaves in the house. They would have been around doing much the same things, dressed the same way. But then if you start to talk to him, it would be different, would it not? you'd find that the sons had, had, had so much more security. They, they, they didn't get sort of thrown by the basic ups and downs of a daily life. They had so much more intimacy. They knew the father person. They knew they could interrupt him in the midst of any of his business. They had an assurance about their lives. They knew where they were going. They knew that he was in control and would protect them. And finally, they didn't worry about their futures as much because they had an inheritance. <laughs> They knew that their future was completely secure and taken care of. You see the difference? So if, 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 you, would have, if you would have found yourself in, a, in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern Roman household, would you be behaving like one of the slaves? Insecure, 
distant, uh, uh, troubled, and fearful of the future? Or would you have walked around like a child, his child? British sprinter Derek Redman was one of the fastest men on the planet heading into the 1992 uh, Summer Olympics in Barcelona. Earlier that year, he had captured the gold in the 400-meter relay and after cruising through the quarterfinals, was by all appearances ready to do the exact same thing in the semis in the Olympics. When all of a sudden it happened, his hamstring snapped and he collapsed to the ground. Redmond would go on to say that he thought that he had been shot in the back of the leg. It hurt so badly. And so as Redmond collapsed to the ground, the men came off to the side with their little stretcher ready to haul him off as they were supposed to do. But Redmond waves them off, sends them back, leave me alone. And very slowly and very excruciatingly painful, he, he hobbles up to his feet and starts to hop down the track so that he can at least finish the race. Until all of a sudden somebody appears out of the crowd. Rather sort of portly fellow sort of push, pushes his way through and sees and, and gets past even the security to run out on the track. And he grabs Redmond around the arm and puts him around his shoulders and carries him and walks him across the finish line. It was Redmond's father who had come to walk him along the rest of the way. And if you want to know whether you have a soul or not, I dare you to watch that YouTube video and see if it doesn't move you to tears. But what, the reason why we ought to watch that is because of how rarely we think of God in those terms. We cower in our prayers, do we not? Because in our minds we think to ourselves, what right do I have to be here? And even that's kind of a funny question, isn't it? Because honestly, in ourselves, we don't have the right to be there in our prayers. But because of what Jesus knows he's going to do on the cross, he can speak to us as if the Father is our Father. In my resurrection from the dead, I will secure a place for you in my Father's presence. And he's a good daddy. You cannot not read Romans 8, 16, and 17 in this moment. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That's that life of the imagination we've been talking about. That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, we will inherit him and fellow heirs with Christ. We're not by ourselves. Look, Jesus wants us to live the good life. But my, my, my submission to you this morning is that we cannot do that until we silence that voice in our head. Because there is a voice in our head. In my family, we call it the shame voice. And that voice is telling us, you are worthless. You have no value. That voice comes along to us and says, oh, there's so many better things. <laughs> Look at all these small trinkets over here that deserve your attention. And then finally it comes along and says, you know what, you're really all alone. It's all about you. You're going to be, are you going to be able to pull this off on your own? Jesus comes along and says, no, do you know how valued you are? Do you know how big your God is? And do you know how much your true Father loves and protects you? Man, take that into your life and see if that doesn't begin to slowly erode, slowly eat away at all of the things that we have to be worried about. Even in seasons of life where it feels like it's worth worrying over. Something to think about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would lead this into us because for some of us, we experience worry as one who have, ones who have never even really apprehended this grace of the cross and the joy that comes from your resurrection. 
Father, it may be that someone here in this room may have been religious for a long time, but has never known you in that way. So, Father, I would ask that you would draw all people to yourself because you present a picture of yourself in this sermon that is so good. We want this, even if we so often fail to live up into it. But we pray that in this very short few moments, even, even as we sing praises to you to close out this service, we pray that what we would see on the other side is joy, just for a moment, that might bleed over into the worries that we have that await us tomorrow morning. Would you give us that grace this morning? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.